Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. If we were going to prepare California for climate change, to shut down our fossil fuel power plants and build gigawatts of solar and wind generation, there was always going to be a moment like this. A moment where the state authorities had to plunk a huge report on the table that said, oh my God, we need so much new renewable energy supply, which means, oh my God, we need so many new transmission lines. We're now in that moment. And on the one hand, it should be terrifying. We're definitely not on pace to meet the goals, but it's also thrilling. This next decade is really it. And today we're gonna consider the practical realities of building the electricity system of the future. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Here's one reality of adding huge amounts of solar and wind power to California's electric grid. The best sun and windiest spots are not close to where the people using electricity live. So that means to use those renewable resources, we'll have to string massive wires there. Here's another reality. Most energy specialists believe that the best way to decarbonize is to electrify everything. Cars, stoves, the heating and cooling of buildings. On the ground, here's what that looks like. CalISO. The organization that runs the electric grid in our state makes plans based on the California Public Utilities Commission's forecasts. When they approved a plan in March 2021, it was based on adding 1,000 megawatts of new power plants every year for the next 10 years. Now, they're already planning for 7,000 megawatts of new capacity every year for the next 10 years. 7x difference. It's almost unimaginable, but that is the scale and speed at which we need to deploy new renewables to actually meet the state's climate goals in the context of huge new numbers of electric cars on the roads and other needs. So today's show is about the infrastructure that will need to be put in place to support that incredible transformation of our state. So first up, we're joined by Michael Wara, Policy Director for the Sustainability Accelerator at the Doors School of Sustainability and Director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program and a senior research scholar at the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to talk about this issue. We're also joined by Nadia Lopez, an environmental reporter for Cal Matters. Welcome, Nadia. Hi, it's great to be here. And we have Neil Miller, who is Vice President of Infrastructure and Operations at Cal ISO. Welcome, Neil. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. 
Um, Nadia, maybe you can help us set us up, like help us understand what we think our energy needs are going to be in the next decade or two. Like, what are the mandates about bringing more electric vehicles on the road and producing more clean energy? Right. So last year, the California Air Resources Board, which oversees the state's efforts to reduce its emissions, uh, passed a new regulation that says 35% of new 2026 car models sold in the state have to be zero emission vehicles. And that ramps up by 2035 to 100% of all the new cars sold in California. Um, so if this happens, that basically means there will be about you know 12.5 million electric vehicles on the road. That's more than 15 times what we have currently. Mm. And to power all these vehicles and support the state's decarbonization efforts, uh, California would have to triple the amount of electricity it's currently producing and deploy all these sorts of renewable resources like solar, wind, and a brand new industry, offshore wind, at a pace it's really never achieved before. Um, so, you know, adding more pressure- Sounds easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and adding more pressure to that, uh, the state has to, meet its carbon neutrality goal by 2045. So there's a lot to do in relatively a short time frame. And by that carbon neutrality goal, what we mean in this context is shifting all power generation to renewables, right? By 2045. That's right. It means uh, cutting our reliance on fossil fuels like oil and gas to um, produce power that will help fuel the grid. Yeah. Um, so Michael Wara, are we on track to meet any of those goals? Well, I think it's I, I think we are on track to meet our clean energy targets. And what we're seeing in the vehicle space is a very rapid transformation, at least in new car and truck sales. And I think that's going to accelerate as we um, as more models become available. And there's also greater clarity about how tax credits apply to new electric vehicles. Um, but I, I, I would heartily endorse, um, not his perspective that this is really an unprecedented challenge and that the key is going to be our ability to build new electric infrastructure, both power plants and transmission lines over the next decade to provide the energy to fuel all of these new approaches to getting the services that we need, like mobility you know, getting around and also heating and cooling our homes. It's going to be a big challenge. Yeah. I mean, Nadia, you have been reporting on sort of grid readiness for this, you know, this unprecedented challenge, as Michael's saying. Um, what have you learned so far? Right. So, you know, a, a big factor is that the agencies right now overseeing the grid are relying on several assumptions that remain still uncertain and depend on a lot of best case scenarios. Um, what that means is, you know, rapidly expanding the number of charging stations we have. We need well over a million to support those vehicles we expect to see. Um, as we've already mentioned, building renewable resources, um, relying on drivers to charge their cars during times of day where demand is low, like in the afternoon or at night. Um, and then of course, you know, uh, dealing with years long permitting processes to get these renewables online, um, community opposition in parts of the state where some of these projects are slated to be cited, high costs that it takes to actually build the infrastructure. Um, 
And all of this is happening as extreme weather is really starting to strain our infrastructure that we currently have, which of course comes back to, you know, the issues we have with our transmission lines and having to make those upgrades. Neil Miller with uh, CalISO. Just have to ask, I mean, are you excited by or terrified about these changes? I mean, for a long <laughs> time, you know, electrical infrastructure was not like an area of great change in this way. But this is like we're building the system that if all goes well, like our grandkids, grandkids will be using the infrastructure that you're planning now. Well, thanks for that. I'd say that uh, here at the ISO, as well as with the state agencies we're working with, it's more a case of determination. Uh, The risk of coming up a little short is not a reason to not move as aggressively as we can to achieve these goals, because the climate change impacts are real, especially in California. If anyone's been experiencing the impacts, it's been Californians. And uh, we simply have to be successful. But like I said, the risk of coming up a little short, we do have these significant challenges. The risk of coming up short, though, is not a reason to not put our best efforts into it. And that's what we're collectively doing. Yeah. Michael War, I mean, if we can't get these transmission lines built, um, what are the sort of downside risks for our ability to actually tap uh, renewable resources or, or meet our, uh, our climate goals? Well, it's pretty straightforward. You know, if, if we, we need to build um, an unprecedented amount of transmission to connect where these new renewable resources are to where people live and electricity demand is high over the next decade. And if we can't do it, we're not going to achieve our renewable portfolio and clean um, generation goals. We're not, and we're also not going to achieve our climate goals because we won't be able to electrify transport in the way that we need to, to really dramatically drive down emissions. There's a second, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a huge challenge. And, and I think the reality is that accomplishing it requires kind of an all of the above approach. We need to be encouraging and building as much rooftop solar and distributed battery storage as we can. We need to be building everything we can in the state of California. And we also need to be cooperating with our neighbors to procure renewable resources from our neighbors, like, um, you know, the geothermal resources from Nevada and Utah, for example, or wind um, from areas where there's abundant um, wind resources. And I think the ISO is thinking about all of these things and, and trying to plan in a much more kind of proactive, forward-looking way. But it's an enormous challenge. We haven't built this much since since there were environmental laws, right? Since the <laughs> 1970s, when we when we passed CEQA, NEPA, the Endangered Species Act, we, we became concerned with the impacts of siting lots of infrastructure without good planning. So it's like we have to solve for building a lot in a modern democratic society. Yeah. Neil, how much can your organization as the sort of grid operators, how much power do you have to to change the underlying reality about how difficult it is to build? Or are you reliant on other actors like the state legislature or the uh, the feds or somebody else in order to make this these kind of plans work? Well, for us, it's a case of really having to work on both tracks. On one hand, the, the, the laws and the rules in place today, they are what they are. And we're working as best we can within that framework. We're also highlighting where there are challenges uh, that are that perhaps could be smoothed out. And uh, 
first, I should clarify, no one is suggesting that uh, we're talking about trying to relax any of California's environmental standards. I believe they're the highest in the nation. And there are a lot of good reasons for why Californians want to keep those in place. That being said, the timing, it, the time it takes to get certain projects approved and move through the process are not always tied to the environmental uh, mitigations. There are other reasons. A lot of those procedural steps take a lot of time, and that adds risk to getting a project built. And it also adds uncertainty to the people that are looking are dependent on that transmission to develop the resources and get them to serve load. So uh, on one hand, we're working with the rules that are in place as they stand today. And that includes having to initiate transmission projects further out into the future. And on the other hand, we're also trying to clarify where there are procedural areas that could be improved to speed up the process overall, because that ultimately does just cost time and money um, going through uh, any unnecessary steps in the process. Yeah. Nadia, as you've uh, talked with people, uh, you know, in these different areas, does it feel like we might end up scaling back the goals or has or are people saying like, no, this is this is the target and we're going to meet it? It's more like the no, this is the target and we have to meet it. I think there's a pretty widespread consensus in the legislator that um you know, at least among the, you know, the Democratic legislators pushing for some of the most ambitious climate policies that this needs to be done in order to really meet the state's ambitious goals. And especially because so many of them are driven by new laws that have been passed and mandates, mm-hmm. um, you know, and yeah, they're, they're ambitious. Nobody is like saying that they're not. Uh, we do have to increase, you know, electricity production by up to 42% in 2035 as much as 85% in 2045. That's according to the California Energy Commission's most recent estimates. And yeah, generation capacity is also something that would need to triple. Um, That's basically the maximum that needs to be installed to meet demand throughout a given year. And uh, I think there's, you know, this sort of reality that that needs to occur, but it's it's a reality people are really pushing for. We're talking about building the future of our electricity system. We've been talking with Nadia Lopez, environmental reporter with Cal Matters. Thank you so much for joining us, Nadia, setting the table here. We're also joined by Michael Wara of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford and Neil Miller with uh, Cal ISO. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. As California moves to electrify more cars, trucks, and life in general, we're talking about one infrastructure we need to meet the increasing demand for electricity. We're joined by Michael Wara, Policy Director for the Sustainability Accelerator at the Door School of Sustainability and Director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at the Woods Institute for the Environment there at Stanford. Neil Miller, Vice President of Infrastructure and Operations Planning at Cal ISO. He wrote the report on transmission needs here in California. Earlier, we were joined by Nadia Lopez, environmental reporter with Cal Matters. I want to add another voice to our conversation. That's Ari Plakta, a political enterprise reporter for the Sacramento Bee. Welcome, Ari. Hi. Thanks for having me. We also would love to add you into the conversation. We know that people um, have a lot of important thoughts and feelings about this you know, energy transition we're going through. Um, we'd love to know... Is the amount of electricity you think you will need changing? Like, have you converted your appliances from gas to electric? Are you now driving an electric car or planning to? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. We'd also love to hear your concerns about building more transmission lines if you have them. The number is 866-733-6786. You can use uh, the email forum at kqed.org and Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. You know, Ari, so we have these truly grand and transformative plans now making their way, you know, into the official state processes. And it's a huge change from how things have gone for the last few decades. Um, You've noted in your reporting and, you know, as Michael Warren was just saying, we haven't really built a lot of long distance transmission lines since the 1970s, which is to say since we had environmental laws. Can you talk to us a little bit more about some of the challenges that these projects have faced? Yeah, so California really hasn't done this in a long time, as you've been saying, and it's pretty wild. I, we looked at this one transmission line called the Vaca-Dixon line, which was the longest and highest voltage power line in the world at the time that brought hydropower from Shasta to the Bay Area in 1920, uh, 1922, mm-hmm. and that was built in two years, um, and today it can take up to a decade to build a project of you know a similar length and the technology really hasn't changed that much. So it's a combination of the permitting process and these years of environmental reviews and uh, additional reviews and then also community opposition from yeah. anything from homeowners to Native American tribes and environmental advocates. So power lines run into or long distance power lines run into a lot of challenges to getting built in California. Yeah. You know, Michael Wara, earlier, Neil Mora was saying that, you know, most people are not suggesting that we um, relax environmental laws in California. But like, are some people suggesting that? Like, it it seems almost like a necessity of this building that some laws are going to have to change about how difficult it has been to build these lines. Well, I think there are so so i i would agree with what um neil said um and i didn't mean to um kind of overstate i think we need to make sure that our environmental laws are being implemented expeditiously like in a reasonable amount of time and one of the challenges is that they can take a while but there are also other steps in the permitting process for electric transmission that can be sped up and the agencies over the last year, from you know, with direction from Governor Newsom, have been trying to really coordinate and and really really sort of align all of their processes so things go as smoothly as possible. Um, but but and I think an additional step in that respect may be to make sure that 
there are enough people at all these agencies staffing this process to really make sure that you know things happen quickly as mm. quickly as they can. But it's 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 a huge challenge, and and certainly there's been proposals to kind of streamline some of these processes that have been made by Congress. So far, they haven't gone anywhere. Hmm. Neil, talk to me about this planning process. Like, I, I think there's kind of two pieces that I'm interested in. I mean, one is how has the process gone, you know, uh, up to now? <laughs> and then it feels like maybe there needs to be a fairly radical change in the planning process going forward, which it seems like y'all are in the midst of instituting. Sure. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, so, off the top, the way uh, our planning process currently works is that uh, the ISO is an independent not-for-profit organization with this responsibility among running the electricity market uh, for 80% of the California, also conducting this transmission planning exercise. And uh, we depend very heavily on the coordination with the state agencies, with the California Energy Commission that provide the load forecasting, and the uh, Public Utilities Commission that takes the lead role in forecasting what kinds of generation we need and where we need it. And those are the two key inputs into our annual transmission planning. Now, when we issue this transmission plan each year and our board approve it, that then triggers someone trying to actually get those lines built. Some lines are eligible for competitive, uh, for, for competition as to who would actually build, own, and operate the line. Other upgrades are assigned directly to the utilities in, in those areas. But that then still requires that person, that, that company to then go through developing the detailed engineering uh, and go through the detailed environmental permitting process uh, to actually get the final approvals uh, permit to actually build the transmission line. And that's a process that can take quite some time. Uh, there, there actually has been legislation directing that those inputs should be provided to us for more than 10 years into the future, recognizing how long it takes to get through the permitting process and actually getting to the stage of building the transmission. So uh, those are uh, those are kind of the key points we look at. Uh, you mentioned earlier as well the uh, you know needing help on all fronts. Uh, demand response programs, rooftop solar. We totally agree and support all of those programs. Those have to be taken into account. And those are actually addressed for us by the Energy Commission in developing forecasts. The forecasts they provide show the totals, but then here's what's left for the grid to have to serve. And that's where we've seen this rapid escalation, uh, both as load forecasts have climbed as well as other energy sectors have been converting to electricity, as well as wanting to remove the carbon out of the existing uh, source of generation as well. Mm. So it's defi definitely a case of pivoting in this process to much higher levels of uh, both the resource requirement as well as the transmission to get it to load. Yeah. You know, Michael War, there, you know, on the national level, I've seen a lot of discussion about transmission lines as essentially kind of public good that gets a bit stranded because it benefits everybody, but it not, but the cost is not internalized by any one actor kind of in the electricity system. Is that true in California uh, as well? Well, I think there is, a, there is always um, dispute about who should pay for a new transmission line, right? Whether, you know, because it, it's, it's sort of like the road from a, uh, 
you know, the UPS logistics center to your house, right? And, and UPS benefits because they make money when they're, or, or Amazon benefits when they make money because they're delivering a package to your house. And you benefit because the package can get delivered. And so who should pay? And the real answer is all of us. Um, transmission gets even more complicated because there are reliability benefits, not just, you know, from delivering energy from one power plant to a place where there's electricity demand, but also having a really robust system means that during times of stress on the system, like summer heat waves, we're more able to kind of move the power where we need it um, without facing constraints and how to value those benefits and allocate their costs to different beneficiaries is, is, is a place where we've had a lot of debate. And I think one of the places we need to get to is just a, a sort of rough justice on these questions so that we can move forward more quickly with um, with the the transmission build out that we need, both in terms of, you know, connecting the the, the wire from the new utility solar plant to the to the backbone grid and also reinforcing that backbone so it's able to handle all of the new demands that are being placed on it. And those are really sort of two different aspects of what needs to happen, but they're both important and we we can run into problems, pay, you know, figuring out who should pay for both, who should pick up what fraction of the tab. Yeah. Ari, in doing your reporting in Sacramento for the for the B and around the politics of this, have you followed the money at all and sort of tried to find like, okay, where where are these incentives going to come and for whom and those kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a growing part of the conversation. I think initially, it's just been getting um, uh, lawmakers and experts and folks on the same page of needing more transmission in the first place. Mm. And there's a lot of concern now that these costs will eventually fall on ratepayers, And we know that that can be ultimately regressive and burden low-income households far more than higher income Californians. Mm -hmm. So I see that becoming, um, you know, more uh, a growing part of the discussion. And then just oversight and making sure that we're fast tracking projects that are really gonna help the state meet its decarbonization goals and for critical, critical renewable energy projects and not just kind of propping up fossil fuel plants for longer term or, you know, granting favors to um, well-heeled interests. And I think the last thing is really introducing more competition into this process that um, I see is uh, becoming more important. And, and when folks talk about this, because utilities, you know, traditionally build these power lines, but reports have shown that competitive processes and if other companies are actually doing the construction that it can go faster and have longer term benefits so i think this is all very much evolving right now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. makes sense given the scale of the transformation here um let's bring in uh, benji in san francisco welcome benji Hi, uh, thanks for taking my question. Um, yeah, so I recently upgraded my um, hot water heater to a heat pump hot water heater. And I had a question about uh, dynamic pricing in California. Um, I participate in kind of dynamic uh, time of use rates where the rates change between 4 and 9 p.m. But I was curious about whether more dynamic pricing um, could help encourage people to charge their cars when solar is more abundant or to use a hot water heater almost as like a thermal battery 
and who in California sets the retail pricing and what your thoughts are on how pricing could enable either you know, more uh, clean energy on the California grid and to achieve this goal. Oh, I love that. Benji, uh, thanks so much. Michael Wara, you want to talk about that? Sure. So um, Benji's point about the time varying um, cost of electricity is is a really important one. We, you know, that we're moving toward mandatory time of use rates, or maybe we've already moved there. But there's also an issue of like, what are those prices and how much incentive do they create to use electric power when um, when it's really abundant, in particular, when the sun is in the sky and our solar power plants are cranking. And sometimes we have too much electricity coming from those solar power plants. Um, we need to get people using all their electric devices, you know, and especially their EVs, charging their EVs when the sun is high in the sky. And, you know, part of that is a pricing thing where we need to create the right incentives. And part of it also is having the physical infrastructure in place so that we can actually take advantage of that energy when it's available. And, you know, both are, both are a challenge. I think the PUC, which sets retail rates and answer your question, Benji, that that's a public utility commission role in, in partnership with the utilities. Um, they need to create very strong incentives that, that guide um, consumers of electricity, but we also need to make sure that the infrastructure is in place, in particular workplace chargers for electric vehicles that allow everyone to, to, to adjust, right? Because it's not really fair to impose penalties if people are don't have the technology available to be flexible. So we need to do both at the same time. Hmm. Let's bring in another car. Let's go to uh, Melanie in Sausalito. Welcome, Melanie. Hi, thank you so much. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Okay, awesome. So I was an early adopter of EVs. I'm on my second EV now, but I'm just not ready to give up gas appliances in our home because when we did the research on having a gas on-demand water heater, it was so much less efficient. Oh, sorry, when we when we looked at having an electric on-demand water heater, it was so much less efficient than the gas. And I don't feel the infrastructure is there for these big home systems and appliances to really manage it. But, you know, I'd never go back to a gas car. So I'm just wondering what we can do about better technology for electric um, systems and delivery in homes to help support this. Melanie, what a what a, a good point. And I have to say, I have an induction stove that is fantastic, but it's also randomly broken twice in two years. So, um, Michael Wara, um, can we talk a little bit about, you know, do we have alignment between the appliances, the generation, and then, you know, kind of walking back up the system um, to the transmission side and et cetera? So- a lot of the money that's being invested in the grid right now is actually going into the the kind of last mile, the distribution system. To, to improve the distribution system that we have, that those are the poles and wires you see in your neighborhood, mostly, not the things that are up on big metal, you know, kind of monster-like towers that reach across the landscape. There's there's a lot of investment going into the distribution system. It's It's partly to reduce wildfire risk and partly to make that system more robust so it can manage electrification of buildings and especially electrification of transport. Um, We need to make those investments. The question really, I think, is how do we make those investments and keep electricity rates low enough Mm. that it's actually attractive to switch from gas to electric from a cost perspective? And that is a huge challenge. It's particularly hard because 
we're not really, you know, usually you make big investments in commodity industries like electricity when there's a lot of growth in the sale of the commodity. But electricity sales haven't really grown in California, thanks to our energy efficiency policies in many years. And we can't really expect a ton of growth because of electrification, because we are so efficient and we keep making our buildings and all of our usage so efficient. So there's going to be a little bit, but it's, so we have to invest a lot of money. We can't, we don't want to raise prices because then people won't want to switch to from elect, from gas, natural gas to electric, you know, from carbon based resources to zero carbon resources. Um, and, and so I think how we pay for all this really is an important question, especially how it affects the, the end consumer and especially low income consumers in California. Hmm. I mean, as I'm listening to you talk, though, aren't we seeing the projections that there will be huge growth in electricity sales? Well, you know, <laughs> huge relative to no growth over the last two decades, but not huge in terms of, you know, the kind of what we what would normally be considered like a growing industry, right? We're talking about growth in sales of 1% a year, perhaps maybe 2% a year. That's sort of roughly at the scale of economic growth. It's not faster than economic growth, right? It's not, we're not talking about what we had in the 1960s and 70s in California, where demand for electricity was growing at five to 10% per year. And the utility's big challenge was keeping the lights on, keeping reliability in the context of this rapid growth of population. And so I, I do think it's a the question of how who pays, how we pay. There's a proposal that the utilities recently submitted to, to move toward an income-based fixed charge. So high-income individuals would pay more for their electricity just as a fixed bill component and low-income individuals would pay less and that will help keep electricity affordable for low-income customers, but it's going to, you know, raise concerns for high-income customers who could see big bill impacts. So, you know, I think there's, there are a lot of ideas out there. We need to be open. And, and I also think, and this has been a big theme the last few years is we need to think about how we can move some costs that are not really electricity costs into the the general fund like out of electricity rates and into taxes mm. um as a as a way to kind of be as efficient as possible with what we're charging we're talking about building california's future electricity system the big challenges also the enormous opportunities for climate impact we're joined by michael wara who is policy director of the sustainability accelerator at the door school of sustainability as well as neil miller Cal Iso and Ari Plakta, political enterprise reporter for the Sacramento Bee. We'll be back with more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As California moves to electrify more cars, trucks, and life in general, we're talking about what infrastructure we're going to need to meet the increasing demand for electricity. We're joined by Neil Miller, Vice President of Infrastructure and Operations Planning at Cal ISO. He wrote the report on state's transmission needs. Also joined by Ari Plakta, political enterprise reporter for the Sacramento Bee, and Michael Wara, policy director for the Sustainability Accelerator at the Door School of Sustainability and director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at the Woods Institute for the Environment there at Stanford. Taking your calls and getting your comments might be hard to get through on the phones right now, but we the question is, you know, are you willing to pay more for electricity to ensure that the grid can meet electricity demand, or should we find other ways to pay for this kind of infrastructure? And what are your concerns about building more electrical infrastructure? You can give us a call, uh, 866-733-6786. The email, forum at kqed.org. You can find us on all the social things at KQED Forum. Uh, got some, want to get some comments here. Uh, Neil, this one's coming to you. One listener writes in to say, might there be improvements in transmission technology, say reduction in power loss during transport, that would reduce the total new electric power that must be brought online to meet future needs? Actually, there are a number of new technologies that are being used. Uh, Some involve uh, more creative technologies being applied to the conductors themselves to reduce line losses. It doesn't show on a radio, but I have two samples of those sitting on my desk, actually, that we're constantly <laughs> looking for opportunities to explore those. We're also using more high-voltage DC technology that also has line loss savings as well to help reduce those, uh, to improve the overall efficiency of the grid. And when we're looking at the at needing new transmission, we're always looking for what the most efficient and cost-effective solution is, including looking at if, this, if uh, transmission needs could be addressed by, say, diverting some battery storage projects into the right area or other alternatives like that. So the goal here is to find the most effective solution and any new technologies. Uh, uh, we, we're always on the lookout for what new technologies we can apply to bring down the total cost and improve the efficiency of the grid. Neil, is it fair to say, though, that it's not like we're going to see exponential change in you know the cost of these technologies? Like They kind of are somewhat they might improve somewhat but they're pretty much fixed right yes a lot of these have it's it's incremental improvements not wholesale Mm -hmm. transition to a massive cost reduction that's why it's so important though that when we're doing our planning we provide estimated transmission cost information to the public utilities commission when they're looking at the resource plans so that when those resource plans are developed the cost has been at least considered in as part of the total cost picture to try to find the best solutions overall. Then when those come back to us uh, to do our actual transmission planning around, that's where we then try to find the best solution within that framework. But uh, yes, there's constant pressure to see what we can do to keep the cost down on this. Uh, But we also recognize that putting it bluntly, the lights have to stay on. We have to keep the system reliable and we have to get the renewable energy to serve load. Um, want to get to this question of, is the system that we're talking about building right now the only one uh, possible, and is it the right one? Elizabeth writes, uh, I've always been horrified by the idea of putting huge solar power plants in sensitive desert habitats. I'd always imagined that we would put solar on every building, on parking lot roofs, and maybe over other, quote, wasted airspace like roadways. 
Why doesn't the added benefit of reducing heat island make this approach better than vast arrays in pristine areas? And I want to stack that with uh, Clyde between coming in to us on the phones between Vallejo and Petaluma, who has a different perspective on this. Yes. I'd just like to make the point that the argument can be made to environmental groups and not in my backyard groups that the the greater good of of wind farms, solar arrays, battery storage facilities, and most importantly, the undergrounding of the grid with more robust copper that needs to happen should be, you know, that's that's the PR that sh- and that should be used, and these groups should certainly help facilitate this because the obvious greater good to the environment is way more than the individual projects, you know, local um, local impact. Local. So I hope the government can, um, you know, streamline those processes. Yeah, That's thank all. you. I'll uh, take my answer later. No, yeah, I appreciate that perspective, Clyde. I mean, there is the trade-off that uh, we're talking about here um, has been a part of a lot of renewable energy discussions, particularly with utility-scale solar, which means you know big solar rays, not the ones on your house. Um, Michael Wara, I mean, the the bigger, broader question here out of this is: Is it possible to get to our goals? with a different kind of renewable heavy system? Like, can we do it with rooftop solar and microgrids and efficiency, like a softer path around this? Or is it really, given the time span, given the urgency of climate change, what we need to do is put a lot of solar and wind in otherwise quite wildernessy areas and then build transmission lines into the cities? So... Um... I would say I, I would sort of fight the hypo that the only way to build utility scale power in renewable power is to put that new those new power plants in pristine locations. I think there are definitely good and bad utility scale projects, and the good projects tend to occur in places with already disturbed land. Um, so, for example. In the California ISO transmission plan, there's intensive planning to build a lot, like a, tri- a, a, a kind of mind-boggling amount of solar energy in the Westlands Water District on the west side of the of the Central Valley mm-hmm. in, in south. And the reason is that Westlands is taking farmland out of production because there's not enough water. And that kind of an opportunity is where we should be putting our renewable energy. But I would answer more broadly, if you look at the numbers, right, the the the, the forecasted numbers that we're going to need to build in terms of renewable energy for, in order to meet our electricity demand and then incorporate electric vehicles into that demand. And and this is important, um, you know, if you look at the ARB, the Air Resources Board's recently adopted scoping plan, they're also imagining a lot of direct air capture of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in order to get to net zero emissions. If you add all that up, we have to build something like somewhere something approximating two to three times as much renewable energy as we currently have, including all the rooftop solar we have and all the, the big utility scale solar we have and wind in the next decade to two decades. That's going to require doing everything. 
it's going to require building all the rooftop solar on buildings. Every building we can reasonably cite, we're going to need to use it. We're going to need to think about parking lots. We're going to need to think about big utility scale solar projects that are cited that take account of the local environmental harms. We put as much of it into California as we can. And we're still also going to have to import energy from out of state. We've, we've always done that. We used to import coal-fired electric power. Now we're, you know, now we're gonna need to think about finding clean electric power to import as well. Because we need to build so much new generation that's zero carbon to meet the needs of 40 million Californians that we're gonna have to be just looking everywhere we can for solutions. I don't think we can afford to sort of say here, but not there, unless you know, building building a project somewhere really conflicts with our values. And 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 I you know, I think it is important to stay true to a broader set of values. Climate is not the only environmental impact that matters. We do need to think about preserving the very special places in California that make California special as a, as a state and unique. And balancing all that is going to be incredibly hard. I think it can be done. But it really does require this sort of all of the above approach. We need to we need to say yes to everything that's zero carbon over the next ten years. That that doesn't involve you know killing lots of Joshua trees or you know imperiling an endangered tortoise or you know those those kinds of impacts that we've seen where projects were were perhaps inappropriately cited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean some of that stuff of following the stuff in the southern San Joaquin Valley. Um, solves a bunch of water issues and also, uh, yeah, provides some r- really high quality solar resource too. Um, and, it, and it provides resources to communities that are being impacted too, right? I mean, it, it, it helps to cushion the blow as the water isn't there for the economies that exist in those communities. Yeah. Um, Ari, I want to come to you on this one. Todd writes in to say, um, with the recent power outages, there were many dark houses in the East Bay with huge batteries just sitting in the driveway. Where is the tech to feed cars back to the house? As an EV owner myself, why am I encouraged to charge in the dark and send my solar to PG&E at an increasingly reduced monetary rate? Does this make sense at scale? Is microgeneration and local storage viable? Is PG&E in the way of all this? Is there policy and competition that could assist in scaling up these technologies? Well, those are a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> you can, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure. You can just right. pick one or two of those. Yeah. Right. Um, well, I mean, the reliability aspect really does come down to capacity and um, building out new transmission to hold and carry um, and meet all of this new demand that comes with home and car electrification. Um, And there are efforts in the moving through the state legislature right now to address that question. And how do we actually get these high voltage power lines built um, and more quickly so that folks Um, aren't being asked to charge their cars at night during the next heat wave. And realistically, these won't be built for the next heat wave. So this is going to be an issue that state officials and lawmakers are going to have to address in the near term. But long term, there are bills like um, SB 420 that was recently introduced by Senator Josh Becker um, that would basically allow state officials to give special designation two power line proposals to limit the amount of time environmental lawsuits could stay standing 
and waive um, an economic review by the Utilities Commission, which they say is um, kind of unnecessary once the environmental review goes through. So there are efforts to just speed this up so that these reliability questions um, won't be, um, will be, will become less pressing and um, really help Californians out long-term. And, and that passed, um, unanimously passed the Senate Environmental Quality Committee last month. So there's definitely a lot of um, momentum behind some of these efforts and whether they're really gonna make a huge dent, I think remains to be seen. Let's uh, go to Don in San Jose with a different perspective. Welcome, Don. Hi, yes. Uh, I'd like to mention the possibility of using uh, small modular nuclear reactors. We are going to need nuclear uh, to uh, uh, help with our generation needs. And the other advantage of small modular is that they can be placed uh, in an in uh, locations that will minimize the cost and the distance of transmission. Uh, and I'd like to hear what your uh, uh, <clears throat> hosts have got to say about that. Yeah. Hey, Don, thank you so much. Um, you know, I feel like over the years there's been such uh, high hopes among some people for, you know, smaller modular um, not Diablo Canyon style uh, nuclear power plants. Um, Michael Wara, h- how do you evaluate this? Say, particularly against an alternative like having battery arrays at maybe some of these locations where there might be a possibility of a small nuclear power reactor? Well, the first thing to say is that absent a solution for long-term storage uh, of nuclear waste, it's illegal under California law to site new nuclear reactors in California. That being said, Uh, There are a number of small modular reactor kind of first of kind projects that are being planned in the West, in particular in Utah. Um, The the projects are currently making their way through the Nuclear Regulatory Commission process and the NRC is also trying to develop a new process to evaluate small modular reactors that's kind of fit to purpose. We'll have to see whether these projects when built actually achieve their cost targets that's always been the big question with nuclear it's not that nuclear is necessarily unsafe it's not that um you know it's certainly a benefit to have clean firm power always on power especially when it's dark especially in the winter um that's zero carbon but nuclear has been catastrophically expensive Ask the ratepayers of Georgia how they feel about nuclear, and they will give you an earful with respect to their new nuclear power plants that are about to be or are coming online there. Um, and so, the the I think we'll the answer is we'll see about small modular reactors, and they may play a role in Western states that are you know because of their connection to California help provide resources to California. But we'll have to see what the costs are. That's really interesting. Let's um get to another caller. Um, Elena in Walnut Creek, welcome. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, so I'm a fairly new transplant from Southern California up to Northern California, um, and just in the process of installing solar in my home, which I've wanted to do for years. Mm-hmm. And I'm concerned um, about the three big power entities in our state and their their um, sort of um, – well, their relationship with the California Public Utilities Commission, and it seems like they're kind of in cahoots sometimes to um, 
disincentivize households from going to solar, especially with the new NEM rate coming up. And then uh, it's net metering the out there. Folks. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah. The net oh, I was just saying net metering. And, um, right. And then legislation just passed. It's going to go for the before the Public Utilities Commission that will change base rates based on income. Um, unfortunately, it's people with higher incomes that can afford to put solar on their individual homes. And um, and I worry that, that if that goes through, it will disincentivize people from doing that. Um, whereas I think we could get a lot of um, – like a lot of traction really from putting together um, cooperatives of individuals with lower incomes to purchase solar power together from a solar farm type of Mm -hmm. situation. And, you know, if that was incentivized, instead of just saying, oh, we're going to reduce your base rate for your, your, um, your uh, electricity usage. Anyways, uh, you know, like they're, I wonder about their priorities, I guess, is the bottom yeah. line. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Elena. I appreciate that. I um, wanted to get to uh, last few calls that are that are not uh, unrelated, uh, last few uh, comments. Um, Stuart wants to write in to say, let's cover sections of our freeways with solar panels. Need I say the potential gain in solar power there would be tremendous. I'd suggest starting with sections near population centers, shortening the connection between power creation and its usage. Other people want to suggest large numbers of electric cars will have huge battery capacity and kind of want to make sure that the grid-to-car connection gets worked out. And Tiffany uh, brings up the sort of global environmental impact of incentivizing electric vehicles will expand pressures on ecosystems with lithium for batteries, such as Chile's Atacama Desert, already suffering from high water diversion and lithium mining, and just wants to note, you know, that those, those things also exist. So much is going to happen with a huge transformation in this uh, in this world. Chris writes in to say, as a native Californian working on environmental items for decades, we need a primer and more incentives that assist with transforming our homes, yards, and mode of transportation. Vast majority of Californians want to work on this, but do not have the funds or information to do so. We've been talking about building this electricity system of the future, and we've been joined by Neil Miller, Vice President of Infrastructure and Operations Planning at Cal ISO. He wrote the report on the state's transmission needs. Thanks so much for joining us, Neil. We've also been joined by Ari Plakta, political enterprise reporter for the Sacramento Bee, and Michael War, a policy director for the Sustainability Accelerator at the Doors School of Sustainability and director of the Climate and Energy Policy Program at the Woods Institute there at Stanford. Earlier, we were joined by Nadia Lopez, environmental reporter with Cal Matters. Thank you so much to all of our guests and listeners for your calls and questions. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.